Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of God. And as I said, our text this morning is one of those events from the Bible that I think many of us know very well. Um, but I always sort of have this fear with well-known portions of the Bible that we all may know about this event, the triumphal entry, what we sometimes call Palm Sunday. We all know about it, but very few of us may actually know what this event is all about. There's a difference between knowing about the event and knowing what the event is about. In other words, we all know, as I said, of Palm Sunday. Many of us probably grew up in churches where on Palm Sunday, little children were given palm branches and they would kind of march around and say Hosanna in the highest. For most of us, I think Palm Sunday is the day where we really begin to focus our, our, our thoughts and, and maybe even begin our Easter celebrations. And I'm not trying to put any of that down, of course, even in Luke's Gospel. Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, is the event which... Uh, triggers Luke's focus on the events of the Passion Week. But I do have to wonder sometimes if, if our sort of man-made traditions surrounding this event, I wonder if those man-made traditions have helped our understanding of what the triumphal entry means, or maybe those man-made traditions have hindered us from truly grasping the significance of this event. If I would have asked you all, for example, as you were entering into the sanctuary, if I would have asked you uh, before the service, what is the significance of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, how would you have answered that question? What would you say is the significance of this event? Beloved, I want us to understand what is happening today in our text. I want us to see the weight and the significance of this day and of this event. I want us to understand why the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem matters. Today, brothers and sisters and friends, we are finally seeing the Messiah enter into the holy city 
of Jerusalem, and that is a big deal. As we've been reading through Luke, we've studied the life of Jesus from his conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. We've followed him as he started his public ministry in Galilee. We've followed Jesus as, he's, as he traveled throughout Judea, doing many signs and wonders. We've been following him for the last several chapters in Luke as he has been on the road, slowly making his way to the holy city, and now, finally, Jesus Christ the Messiah, the one who it was foretold would sit and reign upon David's throne forever, is entering into the city of David. And as we look at this text today, Luke really brings our attention to two main things, two things for us to consider. And the first thing that Luke draws our attention to is how Christ is directly and deliberately preparing and orchestrating this entire event. We see that in verses 29 through 34. Christ's direct and deliberate preparation and orchestration of this event of the triumphal entry. The second thing, of course, that we'll see in our text today is the actual event itself, where Jesus the Messiah enters into Jerusalem, verses 35 through 40. So, as we look at this passage, let's begin looking at Christ's direct and deliberate preparation and orchestration of the triumphal entry. As I said before, verses 29 through 34. Now, this text opens right on the heels of the parable that we looked at last week. Remember, maybe you weren't with us last week or maybe you forgot. Jesus told a parable after uh, leaving Zacchaeus' house. He told a parable so as to try and correct the crowd who was around him, tried to correct that crowd's misunderstanding about what will happen when he enters into Jerusalem. The crowd following Jesus, and it must have been a huge crowd at this point, we see that from today's text, this multitude of disciples, the crowd following Jesus still expected Jesus as the Messiah to enter into Jerusalem, overthrow the Roman occupation, liberate the city, reestablish Israel as a sovereign nation. That is what most of the disciples were expecting Jesus to do when he got to the city of David. And so last week we saw Jesus tell them a parable, which tried to correct that misconception. The parable declared to those disciples that actually, actually what will happen once they enter into Jerusalem is that after a time, Jesus would physically leave them. He was, of course, talking about his ascension into heaven. And the whole point of the parable was to teach his disciples what they should do while Jesus is physically away. To teach us how we should live while we are waiting for Christ to return with the kingdom. And so Luke notes, verse 28, that after he told this parable, Jesus continued on his way, ascending the hill into Jerusalem. And on his way, he comes to the village of Bethany, which is about two miles outside the city. And from Bethany, he sends two disciples into a small, you might call it an outpost, a small outpost called Beth, Bethphage. And here Jesus tells these two disciples that when they enter into this small outpost, they will find a colt. It is a young donkey 
A colt in the Greek could refer to a young horse or a young donkey. We know it was a young donkey. And they are to bring this colt of a donkey to Jesus. This is what Jesus tells these two disciples to do. And already, beloved, I don't want us to miss how Jesus is carefully, deliberately orchestrating this. We should not miss what's happening here. Jesus knows exactly how this event needs to go down. Jesus knows the words of the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's a prophecy about this event. And this really, I think, is the first time, maybe in Luke's Gospel, where we see Jesus directly, intentionally, making sure an Old Testament prophecy about him is being fulfilled in the proper way. That's what Jesus is doing here. Understand, he's not manipulating the situation so as to somehow force himself into an Old Testament prophecy. Instead, he is, in a very real sense, sovereignly directing the course of these events. He is showing his control over everything that is about to, make, uh, about to take place, making sure that these things happen according to the pre-appointed time, according to the will of his Father in heaven. Think about what Jesus tells his disciples. Go to this place, and here's exactly what you're going to find. And when you do find it, someone is going to ask you, why are you untying the colt? And respond to him this way. The Lord needs the colt. And you get the sense that the owners of the colt are like, okay, good, take it. And that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens when the disciples get there. How could that be explained, beloved? Apart from the divine direction of the sovereign God himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ. None of this was happening by chance. Jesus was letting none of this up to chance. He is directly, deliberately preparing and he is orchestrating this event of the triumphal entry. Now as we enter into Luke's Gospel, into his narrative of the Passion Week, I really think this is a good reminder for us, beloved, to see Jesus sovereignly directing the course of events. As we begin to study Luke's narrative around the Passion Week, we have to remember this. Christ is always in control of the situation. Everything from the triumphal entry to his trial, his beating, his death, none of it is taking him by surprise. He's never truly being overpowered by the strength and might of men in the events that are about to happen. He's directly, deliberately orchestrating all of the events surrounding the crucifixion and resurrection. It was all happening according to the sovereign decree of the triune God. And Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, here in the flesh, is making sure the will of his Father is being done accordingly. He is not out of control. He is not out of control as he makes his way to the cross. And so now Jesus uh, made the preparations And the event of the triumphal entry 
begins to unfold, verses 35 through 40. And beloved, as we see this event unfold, there is so much here in the actual entry of Jesus into Jerusalem that we have to pay attention to. But what we need to understand is what makes this event so significant is that for the first time, for the first time in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, he is making it known publicly, clearly. He's making it known loudly that he is the Messiah. This is the public proclamation that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's why this event is so significant. How many times throughout the Gospel of Luke have we read something like Jesus would do a miracle, Jesus would heal somebody, or even raise somebody from the dead. And then after that miracle, what does he do? He commands the people to tell no one what they saw. Right? To remain quiet. Even when he casted out demons. And the demons would say, we know who you are, son of the living God. He would silence them. He would not allow them to speak. But now Jesus no longer commands silence. Now as he enters into Jerusalem, the time that has been appointed has now come. And it is time for the Jews to publicly recognize who he truly is. The time has come for his true identity to be broadcasted. One commentator said the day and the hour have been selected in eternity past. The timing was precise. The mode of his entry, a previously unridden donkey, was carefully chosen. Never before had Jesus done anything to promote a public demonstration. In fact, he had repeatedly withdrawn from the crowds if there was any hint of such a thing. But now, he was inviting attention. And so with this massive crowd gathered, Jesus begins to ascend the hill of the Lord into Jerusalem. And here's how it plays out. First, the disciples, they make a saddle out of their cloaks and Luke says they placed or they put Jesus on the colt. This is drawing, I think, from imagery of King Solomon's own coronation, where Solomon was lifted up and placed on his animal. And as he rode forward on this young donkey, the crowds, the crowds, they started to throw their cloaks on the ground. Now, what is that about? That was an act of reverent worship, beloved. The crowds were basically saying to Jesus, when they threw their cloaks in the ground, they were basically saying, take all that we have, Lord. It's yours. It's yours. We also know from the Gospel of John that the crowd had palm branches. And they laid them down and they cried out, Hosanna. Now the palm branch had a broad meaning, but primarily it symbolized victory. It symbolized deliverance. And it symbolized peace being brought through that victory. The word Hosanna, which John tells us the crowd cried out as Jesus rode by, the word Hosanna means to save or save us. Now I want us to take what John records about the palm branches, about the crowds crying, crying out, save us. And we should combine that with Luke's account here. Luke says that as Jesus was passing uh, into the city, the crowd started to sing or call out Psalm 118, verse 26. 
This is a verse in the Old Testament which was used as a beatitude, a blessing addressed to the king of Israel as he himself would approach the temple of the Lord. Psalm 118, verse 26 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what the crowds were saying or singing as Jesus rode by, but there's a difference. There's a slight difference in Psalm 118 and what the crowds say. The crowds here sing out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They modified the psalm a little bit, you see. Now, why would they do that? Why would they make this one word change? After all, Psalm 118 verse uh, 26 was in reference to the king of Israel. Why do they modify it? Beloved, they modified the verse for two reasons. First, they were declaring Jesus to be the king the messianic king. They were confirming Christ's identity as the Messiah. They were declaring their belief that Jesus is the Messiah. There's a second reason, I think, why they modified this verse. The second reason they modified this verse is because they were still holding on to some expectation as Jesus rode into Jerusalem that as the messianic king, he would overthrow the Romans and deliver the kingdom. In a sense, they were saying, here comes our true king, the conquering king. By modifying that one little word, they were, I think they were implying that they really believed Jesus the Messiah was about to deliver them. But they believed he was about to deliver them from the yoke of Rome. Understand that. You know, it's not, it's not just the fact that they changed one word in Psalm 118. If you put it together with what John says, it's really the entire picture that leads us to this conclusion. The crowd still had the wrong, wrong expectations for Jesus. Take what we see here. Combine it all together. The changing of one word in Psalm 118. The use of the palm branches, which again symbolize a peace which comes through victory and deliverance. The use of the word Hosanna. Yes, of course Jesus is the Savior, the one who can save. But when the crowds cried out, save us, what salvation did they mean? I think everything we know about the crowds of disciples that day is that they really believed that the salvation they needed was from a foreign occupying nation. This crowd knew that Jesus was a deliverer, but they really ultimately had no clue what kind of deliverer he was. We call this, the, we call this event, beloved, the triumphal entry. And it is. It is the triumphal entry. Here is the king, Jesus, triumphantly entering into his city, the city of David. And hordes of his servants, hordes of his disciples are following down and worshiping as he enters. It is a triumphal entry. And oftentimes, this event drums up feelings of joy in our hearts. We usually view Palm Sunday, I think, as a joyous moment in the life of Christ just a few days before the greatest tragedy of his life. And maybe we even see this event as the one moment when, in his earthly ministry, he actually receives the recognition and the praise due to his holy name. 
But beloved, while there is a sense of triumph here for Jesus, and certainly some vindication, as all these people begin to bow down before him and recognize that he is the Messiah, there's also, when we really understand what's happening here, there's also a huge sense of utter tragedy. It's no coincidence that this passage is followed up what we will look at next week, another lament of Jesus Christ. There is a sense of tragedy in this event. Tragedy, beloved, because the mass, this massive crowd still had the wrong understanding of the Messiah and of the kingdom of God. Despite everything that Jesus had tried to teach them, despite having just told the crowd of this parable that we looked at last week, this crowd of disciples will simply not abandon their misconceived notions about the Messiah. They wanted deliverance from Rome. That's what they expected. That's what they would demand of Jesus. In fact, beloved, even in this very moment, how stubborn is the crowd? So stubborn, they refuse to hear what Jesus is saying. Even in this very moment, as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, he was declaring to them a truth about what kind of Messiah he would be. And they were still missing it. There's one element of this account that I have not addressed yet, much, uh, yet uh, in much detail, and that is the importance of the donkey. We know that Jesus had to ride on a donkey because of the prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse 9. But what did the donkey represent? It had symbolic meaning. It's not just a random animal that was chosen here. In the days of King David, the donkey was a royal animal. King David, uh, some of the scriptures record for us that they would see King David riding his donkey through the city of Jerusalem. The donkey represented humility and peace. Even Zechariah himself said the Messiah would be humble, mounted on a donkey. So here we have the Messiah, the King of Kings, entering into the city of Jerusalem on a royal animal. And by the way, it's a borrowed donkey. That should not be forgotten. That in his earthly life, the King of Heaven emptied himself to the point where he could not even afford to ride in on his own donkey. Here he is, riding on an animal which symbolized humility. This was not a war horse, in other words. Clarence McCartney really gets to the heart of this symbolism. He says, how strange a contrast to the triumphal entry of ancient warriors and conquerors in the cities in which they had taken. This time, no wall was broken down for entry. This time, no garland hero was standing on his war chariot, driving down the lane of cheering subjects, past smoking altars, and followed by captive kings and princes in chains. Instead of that, just a meek and lowly man riding upon the foal of a donkey. And the crowds still missed it, beloved. Here, even in the triumphal entry, Jesus was proclaiming to the crowds he would not be a military conqueror. He would not come and overthrow the Romans. And the crowd just, they simply refused to listen. They rightly praised God. I want us to see what the crowds did right. They did rightly praise God for the works 
that God had done through Jesus Christ. They praised God because they saw the lame walk and the blind see and the dead raised to life. They even sang out a great truth. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Think about that. It sounds a lot like the song that the angels sang in Luke chapter 2, except, again, they modify it. The angels sang what? Peace on earth. The crowds now sing peace in heaven. And they were right. They didn't understand what they were singing, but they were 100% right. There is no peace on earth without peace in heaven. They didn't understand it, but they sang that truth. In other words, in order for men to have peace amongst one another, we must first have peace with God. And indeed, it would be Jesus who would be the one to reconcile sinful men to the holy God. In fact, he was going to do it in just about four days from his entry into the city. Jesus was the one who would spill his blood, who would make peace in heaven possible for any and all who would come and receive him and his atoning work on the cross by faith. But despite the fact that the crowds did the right things, sang the right things, it was all under this wrong understanding of who Jesus was. It was all under a false pretense of who Jesus was and what he came into the world and even what he came into the holy city to do and accomplish. Do you see the tragedy in that, beloved? Is it any wonder why in just a few days from this event, the same crowd who is worshiping Jesus in this moment would be calling for his crucifixion? Jesus did not live up to their expectations. These misconceptions concerning Jesus were not a small issue. These misconceptions led many in that crowd to go from praising Jesus to calling for his murder. And Jesus, again, he knows it. He's completely sovereign on all of these events. He is not going to be surprised when at his trial, he looks out into the crowd yelling, crucify him, and he sees many of the same faces who were bowing down before him in this event. But despite knowing what was before him, Despite knowing the massive betrayal he would experience, what does he do? He allows the crowds to continue to bow down before him on this day. In fact, the Pharisees come and they try to get Jesus to stop the crowds. And he refuses to do it. And he says, I tell you, if these were silent, and if the crowds were silent, the very stones would cry out. The point he's making there, beloved, is nothing would stop the public declaration that Jesus is the, the Messiah, the long-promised Savior who would come and set his people free. The, the crowds were right even in that point. The crowds wanted deliverance. Jesus was bringing it. But he was not bringing deliverance from the tyranny of oppressive governments. He was, he was bringing deliverance to his people from the tyranny of sin and death and the devil. The truth of who Jesus really is is the eternal Son of God in the flesh. It had to be publicly proclaimed. And even if this crowd could have been silenced, Jesus says the stones would have begun to cry out the great truth 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so there's a great tragedy here based on the misconception of this crowd concerning who Jesus is. And as we close today, I just want to make one brief point of application. And it's a challenge to all who are listening to this sermon. Because we see in this account from this great crowd, I think we see how important it is to receive Jesus for who he revealed himself to be. This crowd continuously refused to hear Jesus and his teachings. They persistently held to their misconceptions and their wrong expectations about what they wanted Jesus to be and do. And because of that, although in our text today they worship him, when Jesus does not deliver what they really want, they turn on him and cry out for his death. They weren't truly worshiping him. That's the thing, beloved. They were worshiping their own idea of what they wanted Jesus to be. Beloved, many people today are very much like this crowd. Many people today, maybe even you, have preconceived notions about who Jesus is, what he is like, what he came to do. And despite everything that the word of God says about Jesus, you simply refuse to hear him. You like the Jesus of your own mind instead of the Jesus who is proclaimed and revealed in the scriptures. And I want you to understand, if that is you, if you choose to believe in and worship a Jesus of your own making, then you believe in a Jesus who cannot and will not save you. Jesus did not come to save you from your trials and tribulations, although he is certainly with you through your trials and tribulations. He did not come to make your life uh, comfortable. He did not come to make you healthy and wealthy. He did not come to give us a good, an example of a quote-unquote good person. He did not come to teach us about social justice or equity. He did not come to support your political beliefs. He did not come to bless America. Jesus came, beloved, as the eternal Son of God who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that he could accomplish the true eternal deliverance of his people. Deliverance from the guilt and power of sin and death. Deliverance from the bondage and slavery and oppression of the devil. He came to set captive souls free. That's the deliverance we need most in our lives, beloved. That's the deliverance every single person needs. That's the deliverance that Jesus Christ the Messiah offers to everyone who would come to him and repent of their sins and receive him by faith. Only the true Jesus, the Jesus who is declared to us in the pages of the Bible, can accomplish that deliverance. Is that the Jesus you're worshiping? Any other Jesus is an antichrist, is a false Christ, an idol, a figment of your imagination which will do you no good. Understand this, beloved. The day is coming when Jesus will once again return. There will be another triumphal entry. One where he will establish in full the kingdom of God. And this time he will not be on a donkey. 
He will not be on an animal of humility and peace. He will return riding a great war horse. Revelation 19 says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Before that day happens, beloved, before that day happens, you better make sure that you are bowing down before the true Jesus Christ. Believing, trusting, receiving Him for who He says He is, not for who you want Him to be. You better lay aside your preconceived notions. Lay aside all your desires for what you want Jesus to be and what you want Him to do and receive Him for who He is. And place your trust in what he says he came to do for you. You do that. You will be saved. If you do that, salvation will be yours. Jesus will be your Messiah. He will be your Savior. He will be your Deliverer. But again, you must receive and trust in who he says he is, not who you want him to be.